we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. Today we're going to be doing our Q&A episode that is uh, focused on the two Divine Council episodes we did. So the questions will all be having something to do with something Divine Council related, but I would like to do a question answer maybe at the end of every month. So if you have questions about anything, this is a new thing I'd like to do, um, just send them to information at apologetics.org. They can be about any topic regarding anything Christianity related. So start sending in your questions throughout the month and we'll pile them up. And then at the end of the month, we'll do some sort of Q&A, maybe the last Friday of the month. Uh, That idea will develop more as the month goes on. But Anyway, I hope you're having a good weekend, if you consider Friday the weekend, I do. Uh, so I hope things are going well. I'm going to be doing some fun stuff and seeing some family. We have a lot of house stuff going on. We're working on getting a house. Uh, so we have a lot, of, a lot of new stuff to do that I've never done before. But <clears throat> with that being said, I hope you're having a good weekend too, because I certainly am. And I'm excited for this question and answer. Uh, so thank you for those of you who have sent questions in. I wasn't going to name anybody in anybody's names. I don't know if people usually do that. I've heard it done, but I think it's a little weird. Uh, so I don't know. I wasn't going to say anybody's names. If you guys think I should, then email me and let me know. Uh, but I was just going to read the questions. And so we have um, we have a number of questions having to do with the Divine Council. And then at the end, what I'm going to do is take a discussion I had with a listener, a very good discussion, uh, over email. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn it into... a. F- a few questions. It's about the the view of the Satan in Job, not actually being Satan or the devil, uh, the cosmic evil being who we know as Satan. Um, so my view is that Satan, the Satan in Job, is not Satan, the character. Um, so we're, we're going to get into that toward the end. That's going to be the last thing. And what I'm going to do is pull up an article that somebody had written against that view, against Heiser's view, uh, that originally came from Unseen Realm, of the Satan and Job not being a name, but being a term used. And it's actually not the same Satan that we see in the garden and that we see in the New Testament and so on and so forth. So that's going to be last. Make sure you stay for that because I'm going to go through an article that I found uh, and try to go through at least the top few. I don't know if we'll have time for the whole article, but I'll go through the top three or so um, from that article opposing the view that I hold uh, on the Satan in the book of Job. So stay for that. But We'll get started on the question and answer here. Just make sure you hit follow wherever you're listening from, and that way you're alerted of every new episode, including that Q&A that'll come out at the end of the month, uh, because it's easy to forget with all the content we listen to. So hit follow. That would help us out. It'd help you out. And thank you so much for listening to this show. Um, It really is an awesome opportunity to get to talk to you guys and to pretty much get to talk about the Bible every week and just constantly be thinking about it. So I hope it's as much of a blessing to you as it is to me because I enjoy every second of it. So with that being said, uh, the first question came over email and it is, are there any Jewish scholars who affirm this concept? 
Now, again, the concept we're talking about here is the divine council worldview, and it's the idea uh, that under Elohim, the Most High, who we know is God, Yahweh, uh, the creator of everything, there are lesser Elohim, like we see in Psalm 82, for example. Uh, so these lesser Elohim are underneath God. They're not all equal gods. Uh, God is much, much greater. He created these other Elohim, but they rule underneath him uh, or did rule underneath him where he permitted for them to do so. So uh, the divine council worldview, is it held by any Jewish scholars? And the answer is today, as far as I'm concerned, uh, conservative Orthodox Jews would not hold this view. Uh, this is not a Orthodox Jewish position as of 2023, uh, but it was during biblical times. So throughout the Old Testament, especially, you can see it all over the intertestamental period. You can see it all over even before the Old Testament was written. Uh, and we'll get into that. We'll probably do a series down the road, but I'll save that for another question. Um, so the Orthodox Jewish scholars of today would not hold this view more than likely. Uh, but I personally wouldn't base, for the most part, my views off of Orthodox Jewish scholars, uh, except for in some cases, because they also don't hold the view of the Trinity. Um, they would think that the view of the Trinity is heretical, which is interesting because there was a Jewish scholar named Alan Siegel. Um, I think it's A-L-A-N, Siegel might be S-E-G-A-L. Um, anyway, he wrote a book called The Two Powers in Heaven. And if you've listened to the episode we did on Jesus in the Old Testament, or Jesus being the visible God in the Old Testament, I'll link that in the description. I'll try to remember that. I make a lot of promises, and then I forget them as I keep talking on and on. But anyway, Alan Siegel wrote a book called The Two Powers in Heaven, uh, which does advocate or, or explain the view of Bitarian monotheism. And that's just basically two fancy terms. Bi means two, mono means one. So it's the idea that in the Old Testament, you see God as two, not just as one. For example, in Sodom and Gomorrah, the Yahweh on earth rains down fire from the Yahweh in heaven. So Alan Siegel did uh, write a book showing that the Jewish scholars of the time, uh, during the time of scripture, held this two powers in heaven view, where you see Yahweh as more than one in the Old Testament. Um, not just that he switches forms, but both the physical and the invisible Yahweh are both present at the same time. Uh, you also see this, for example, in Daniel with the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. So this is a concept that uh, Alan Siegel, who was a distinct Jewish scholar, he is, he's passed away now, but he had pointed this out and he'd written that book about it. So um, there. anyway, all that to say, there, there are a lot of views that Christians hold today that Orthodox Jews just want nothing to do with, the most obvious being, you know, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Um, so, so it's not an Orthodox Jewish view today, uh, but it was during biblical times, and he does a good job showing that in that book, if any of you have the desire to read that. And actually, the, I'm going to move a question here. I'm going to put another question after this, because as I'm talking, I think it ties in fairly well. And it's basically, you know, what about the people who have never heard about this view? Uh, it seems like a view that not a ton of people are familiar with. It seems like a view that a lot of people throughout church history probably went on worshiping God and and didn't know about. Um, so, you know, what about that? What about the people who had never heard about this view? Did they just kind of have it all wrong all this time? Uh, and the answer is sort of yes and no. I don't think that holding the divine council worldview or not holding the divine council worldview determines whether or not you can be a Christian. I think it's something that 
that enriches the way that we see God and the way that we read scripture. And I think it's always significant to learn the most about context that we possibly can. But this is not a determining factor as to whether or not you can be a Christian. It just helps you make more sense of things uh, that we see in scripture and scripture as a whole. As we talked about with that mosaic thing, where you see all these little parts that work together as one big, one big piece, one big painting, so to speak. Um, and I'm going to save that for another question as to the purpose of it. Um, but people who haven't heard about it, it would just be like people who haven't heard of another view. Um, and when you look at the Reformation, for example, where you get faith alone, where you get sola scriptura, um, that you know the authority of Scripture alone is what we lean on, and when you take all of this stuff that came out of the Reformation, most of these, though scriptural, were new ideas at the time. You know, For over a thousand years, most of these things were just in the dark and nobody had thought about them and hardly anybody held those views up until the pre-Reformation, I guess you could call it, with, with John Huss and all that sort of thing. But it wasn't really until the Reformation that these views became commonplace. Uh, and so I would just look at it that way, that you know, if people haven't heard about it, so what? Not everybody knows everything about the Bible. You know, we're just going to continue learning more and more as we go on. So I don't think it's a deciding factor. I think it's just something that is important because it's the the biblical worldview that the Jews would have held when the Bible was written, both the Old and New Testament. Uh, so the Old Testament, even coming into the existence of Israel, this view already existed in near ancient Near Eastern culture. And then in the New Testament, we see it all over the New Testament, and we'll continue that down the road. We see it in the intertestamental period. So uh, it's really just, I guess, restoring a view that already existed during biblical times. And there are a lot of views like that. There are a lot of views, uh, the Nephilim in Genesis 6, for example. Now a pretty good amount, I, I don't have a statistic here, but I would say it's probably easily the majority of scholars of biblical scholars would now probably agree that the Nephilim in Genesis 6 are fallen angels, are fallen spiritual beings, sons of God, B'nai Elohim, uh, who did impregnate women. And, you know, that's a pretty common view now, but it wasn't for a long time because when Augustine came along, uh, he didn't like this view and he came up with the the Sethite lineage view. And so, you know, a lot of people had changed their mind at that point and it was sort of lost, but now it's back. So this happens a lot. There are a lot of biblical views that sort of get lost over time and then get recovered. We even see it in the Old Testament when the the Torah was covered in dust in the back room and they uncovered it and they started to obey it. Um, You see the same thing when they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and they were rebuilding the temple. So this is a, a pattern we see throughout the Bible. But of course, nobody would come along and say, because the Torah was covered in dust for so long, we should just forget about it and not hold that view. Uh, so I would always base my view on what we see in Scripture. And if somebody's going to convince you out of a view, make sure it's not just based on church history. Make sure it's not just based on a system of theology, though those are both very significant and, and we would know a lot less without them. Uh, make sure when you change your mind on something, you're convinced scripturally, not just in some other some other way. So for people who had never heard about it, um, have them hear about it now. So let's go back to the original number two. Uh, So the third question now is, since my curiosity was picked by this teaching, I decided to review the Unseen Realm documentary on YouTube. By the way, if you haven't seen that documentary, I would check it out and read the book. Please read the book. It'll change your life. 
Uh, I was surprised to see Eric Mason included as a proponent of this worldview. My question is, how do you square Dr. Mason's support of the Divine Council to his controversial views on the woke church? First of all, I love the way you asked the question, not only the thought, but also when you referred to him as Dr. Mason, even though you disagree with him. I like that. I like. I think it's good to show people respect. And that article we're going to get to at the end of the question and answer, uh, the guy who wrote the article does that same thing. I think that's a great way to ask a question. So the question is basically, um, Eric Mason is a proponent of the Divine Council worldview, but he's also a proponent of some controversial views on the woke church. Well, the first thing I would say is two things can be true at once. So somebody can have one view that's right, and they can have one view that's wrong simultaneously. Uh, in fact, we're all probably doing this right now. There's, all, there's probably views each one of us hold that are right, and then there's probably views we hold that are wrong and that we should throw out or, or at least uh, change to make more accurate. So I think the simple answer is I think he's right about the divine council worldview. I don't know exactly what he believes about it, but I do know uh, that you're right. He is at least a proponent. I've heard in some short videos, at least him referring to it. Um, And on the other hand, I would completely deny anything supporting the woke church. And I did want to add a quick disclaimer here because what you're going to see a lot now that everything settled down is you're going to see people coming out and saying, yeah, we're against the woke church, no more woke. And then when something comes up, they're going to be right back on board. They're going to fall right back in a line. Uh, when, when all this stuff first happened with George Floyd and with the riots and all that, I'm not exaggerating. We were the only church in our entire area to stand against any of this. Nobody, almost nobody. I, I shouldn't say nobody because there are very few, but literally almost nobody was willing to say anything against CRT or anything like that until everything settled down. And in fact, I'm not going to name names because uh, it's just not going to be beneficial or fruitful here. But there was a pretty big church that you've probably heard of not too far from us uh, who literally did a panel discussion at their church on the book White Fragility. And they took it down later when they found out how much trouble they were going to be in. But that w- that's what was going on at the time. And so be careful because a lot of the time people will say they're not woke or they're against the woke stuff now, but they'll fall right back in the line when something comes along, when it, when it actually takes standing up to. Uh, so be aware of that. But I would agree with you that the woke church is just a terrible thing. It's, it's, it's a contradiction to even use woke and church in the same sentence, uh, assuming you're, you're defining woke as these worldly ideologies that are literally rooted in anti-Christianity. So um, I think the way I would put it, I, I would wholeheartedly agree that his views on the woke church are wrong, but his views on the divine council would be right. And so I think he would just be right about one thing and wrong about another. Uh, but I would say, if I'm going to learn about the divine council worldview, um, though he might have some good stuff to say in that area, which wouldn't disqualify anything he says that's true in that area, I'd probably just learn about it from Heiser or somebody like that, someone who you know is not involved in that. Uh, so that way, when you share the videos with somebody, what they're, what they're going to do is they're going to look at it like you're putting your stamp of approval on that person. Um, and then they're going to see the woke stuff and probably get drawn into it. But at the same time, you don't want to just write somebody off because you disagree with one of their views. Uh, so how you go about wrestling with that, I think you'd have to just follow your own conviction. But long story short... <clears throat> I think he could just be right about one thing and wrong about another thing. So uh, that's a good question, and that's a good observation, uh, researching and finding people who are advocates of this view. And I think you'll actually find that more people than you expect 
are advocates of this view in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I think even John Piper is, to some degree, an advocate of the divine counsel. I don't know to what extent, so I don't want to use him as a, the prime example here, but um, <clears throat> it is pretty common for people to recognize that a divine counsel does exist. And in fact, I think that's completely undeniable in Scripture. It, it, it does exist. It's plainly stated a number of times as we've gone over the episodes. Um, but that doesn't mean that they hold it to the full extent. Uh, so I, I think that we need to just look at the divine counsel in Scripture and interpret it by what Scripture says and not by what our the- theological view, our preformed view, uh, wants to say about it. <clears throat> So, yeah, I think he's just wrong about one thing and and right about another. That's how I would probably put it. Next question. Uh, On your podcast, Elohim and the Tower of Babel, why is it that absolutely no source material is being utilized from before 500 BC? Elohim is Akkadian, yet cuneiform is not addressed. Uh, The Tower of Babel is historically attested as is history before and after the tower, Yet this is not discussed. Uh, ancient Mesopotamian thought processes surrounding councils or divine councils goes ignored. And instead, uh, second century BC documentation is noted as though that is old. The third century BC is one of the most prolific periods in history with more writing than the European ages, middle ages. Uh, why is this ignored? Well, there's a couple things here. The first thing is uh, I wasn't doing an episode on the history of the Tower of Babel or the history of any sort of uh, manuscriptural evidence or anything like that. Uh, the reason I mentioned the Tower of Babel is because it's significant to the divine council view. So in the episode, it's just it's just assumed that the Tower of Babel is true. Probably down the road, I'd really, really like to do uh, an episode, or not an episode, but a series on Genesis 1 through 11, all of Genesis 1 through 11, including creation, including uh, the Nephilim, including Noah's Ark, including the genealogies, including... Uh, the Tower of Babel. And so I'd like to do a series going straight through and, and looking at all of this stuff and having different people on from different views uh, who hold pretty significant views. So I would like to do that, but that's just not what this series is. Uh, and while I do agree with you about the uh, the origin of the term Elohim and so on and so forth, I think there's a lot of very, very interesting stuff in ancient Near Eastern culture Uh, and in the ancient parallels that largely goes ignored. But my intention here was, especially for a lot of people who may not be familiar with this view, uh, to start from Scripture and to show the divine counsel from Scripture before getting into anything uh, extra-biblical or outside the Bible. And so I think it's more important, really, to, uh, to start with Scripture and show that this is a scriptural view before we get into anything else that would enhance it or that would go along with it from outside the Bible. So... Uh, that's that's the short answer. Is it just the series I was doing was just showing the divine counsel from Scripture? Uh, but like I said, I would like to get into the stuff that you had mentioned here, uh, including ancient writings, including the history of the Tower of Babel, because I think there's actually a lot of interesting evidence for the Tower of Babel. Um, in short, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. A lot of people think if you've watched like the History Channel or whatever. Um, they'll say that the Tower of Babel did exist, but it was built during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and I don't agree with that. I think that when you look at what Nebuchadnezzar actually said, he completed the tower. And when you look at Genesis 11, it never says that the tower was destroyed. So I think the tower is ancient, and I think Nebuchadnezzar possibly did complete it. Uh, but I would like to do a whole thing on that. So 
there's a lot of interesting theories. There's a lot of interesting evidence regarding that sort of stuff. But my intention was to show that the divine council, from a scriptural standpoint, does exist. Uh, as far as why I referenced the intertestamental period a lot, the reason is that we see the divine council in Jewish culture flourishing. We see tons of writing about it. We see tons of writing about uh, Genesis 6 and the Nephilim. In fact, the book or the books of Enoch are really focused on uh, expanding the story in Genesis 6. And we'll cover that in the Genesis 1 through 11 series. Uh, but but there's just tons of writing having to do with this in the intertestamental period. And one of the reasons that period between the Old and New Testament is so important is not only does it tell us what the Jews thought at the time, not only does it tell us what the Jews were expecting of the Messiah at the time, but also it's what the New Testament authors read and knew. You know, a lot of people don't recognize this, but when you read like First and Second Peter, when you read Jude, uh, and then you'll see it sprinkled all throughout the New Testament, there are things that really are difficult to try to explain and reconcile without the uh, without the book of Enoch or the books of Enoch. Like when you read that weird passage in First Peter three, I don't think there is a good view that exists outside of pairing it with the book of Enoch. And I know that sounds weird to a lot of people because you're going to say, wait a minute, that book's not in the Bible. And you're right, it isn't in the Bible, and it shouldn't be in the Bible. There were a few few people in the early church who advocated for it to be in the Bible, but they basically said, well, you know what? The spirit of the, the church, the Holy Spirit's not moving that way. It's not going to be in the Bible, so that's okay. I'm not going to fight to the death on this. And so it wasn't in the Bible, and I don't think it should be in the Bible, but I do think it was heavily influential to New Testament authors and how you could kind of look at it. And I think this is actually the way Heiser described it. That's probably where I heard it. The book of Enoch would have influenced Peter and Jude and the apostles in the same way that if you're a Calvinist, then the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin has heavily influenced your worldview, even though it's an extra biblical book. Uh, if you're dispensational, then Ryrie's, you know, dispensationalism and all that stuff has influenced your view of the Bible in a lot of ways. So some of these books would have influenced uh, the New Testament authors in the same way that these books have influenced our worldviews. They would have helped shape their worldview. I mean, think about it. They had three or four hundred years where the spirit of prophecy had departed from Israel and there were no new biblical books being written. Uh, that's when the, you know, the holiday Hanukkah came about. And so there's a lot of significant stuff that happened. And um, anyway, that's why it's important. We should be reading the books that the New Testament authors read if we want to understand the context the best that we possibly can. So that's why I did reference the intertestamental period a lot. I think it often gets looked over, but it's one of the most significant periods in the church, really, especially in regard to to this kind of stuff, to the Messiah, to understanding the, the full context of the, the New Testament. So um, thank you for the question. That's, that's basically how I would put it, though. Uh, I was just showing that the divine counsel from a scriptural standpoint undeniably exists. The next question is actually one um, that I've heard from a few people in person. So I'm just going to try to, I guess, ask the question plainly. And it is, this view sounds a lot like polytheism or like Mormonism uh, or something along those lines. And my response is, it's not. It's not polytheism because polytheism would be uh, believing that there are a bunch of 
basically a bunch of Yahwehs who are uh, equal to one another, who are fighting for their for their spot and for their authority. And that's not what we have with God. Uh, what we have is God, Yahweh, the Most High, the Most High Elohim, El Elyon. And what we have is God over all of these other creatures that he created. So in the Christian worldview, and even in the Jewish worldview, God is the only uncreated being. So when we operate, when a car operates, when your cell phone operates, all of us have to draw energy in order to operate. Uh, So for me to use my phone, I have to charge my phone. My phone has to draw power from that electricity and try to hold on to it and utilize it. Um, When you operate, you have to have food, you have to have water, you have to have friction and exercise and all these things. So you're drawing energy in order to operate. But God's the opposite. God's the giver of life. So he doesn't draw any energy in order to operate. He is completely self-sustaining. He is the only one who is completely self-sustaining. So God is the only one who is the true God. All of these other Elohim or quote-unquote gods, which by the way, if the term gods is uncomfortable to you, as C.S. Lewis says over and over in Mere Christianity, just throw it out. Just don't use the term gods for now if it's uncomfortable to you. Um, Use the term Elohim because that's the term that we see in the Hebrew Bible to describe these creatures. But the idea is that they're uh, they're not technically angels because there is some sort of ranking system here. But if we're going to use common language, these are kind of like angels um, who are underneath the authority of God. He created them as his counsel. And when he had them rule, when he handed the nations over to them at the Tower of Babel, as I'd mentioned last episode, this is also not a view that that's, that's that foreign to us when you really think about the extent of it. Because you believe that God has done the same thing with human rulers. I mean, I'm sure you believe that we actually have a president, Joe Biden. I'm sure that you believe that England actually has a king. I'm sure you believe that uh, China actually has a a ruler. And it's like, so you, you believe that all of these human leaders exist, but you also certainly don't believe that their authority is above God. So it's the same thing with God's heavenly family. It really is as simple as that. He decided that he created them and was going to use them to rule in a certain way and to a certain extent. And we see that very clearly in, uh, in Daniel chapter 4. When Nebuchadnezzar is given his, his dream, he's given his sentence, so to speak, that he was going to go out into the wilderness and be a, a nut job for a little while. But guess who that was decreed by? It was decreed by the watchers. I'm not going to go back to the intertestamental period talk here, but that's another term that we see all the time in the intertestamental period. The watchers were angels. And so this was decreed by the angels who would have been over Babylon. And even though it was decreed by them, it still says in that text in chapter four, it says that they decreed the sentence, but they did this to glorify the most high God. And so we see that perfect harmony working in in Daniel chapter 4, where these angels are given authority. In the New Testament, they're called authorities, they're called principalities, Satan's called the God of this world. That's undeniable. You can't deny that, (laughs) or you're going to have to deny an awful lot of scripture. So they are given authority, but they're given authority under God. They're not equal with God. We also talked about this in the Satan series, the Who is Satan series that I'll also try to remember to link below. Let me write some of this down so I don't forget. Uh, but the in the Satan series, we talked about how Satan is often looked at as like God's equal, almost like you have a good bad and a good God and a bad God. But that's not what Satan is. 
Satan was created by God. He is not equal with God. He's not constantly like, God's like, oh my goodness, I have to overcome Satan. What am I going to do? Like, it's so easy for him because he created Satan. He flicked him out of the Garden of Eden. The Bible doesn't actually say flicked, but I like to use that term. I like to just picture him getting flicked and being like, ah, just falling down to earth and to Sheol where they're awaiting him. But anyway, um, you don't have these like dueling. It's not, it's not dualism. You don't have these dueling powers between God and Satan. You don't have like God sword fighting the divine council. You have him ruling the divine council. And we showed that come to fruition uh, in the New Testament in John chapter 10, when we see that Jesus is the ruler of the divine council. He is the destroyer of the gods. In Mormons, because uh, I think I mentioned Mormonism in the question here, uh, but Mormonism, they see the John 10 passage very differently. Let me go ahead and just read it so everyone knows what I'm talking about. But uh, listen to the Did Jesus Claim to Be God episode. Uh, because I talk about that, I think it was the last one toward the end, even if you just want to fast forward. But uh, when we look at John 10, Jesus is accused of blaspheming, of claiming to be God, and they're, they're ready to kill him. They're ready to stone him, which is why he was ultimately killed, by the way, for claiming to be God, quote-unquote blasphemy, even though he was God. So let me start in John 10. I'll just read this short paragraph, 34 through 39. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture could not be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do you believe me? Or do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father." And again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So what Jesus just said here, the Jews immediately understood and tried to grab him to kill him. This is because they held the divine council worldview, the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Because what does Jesus say? He comes up to them and he says, well, even in your own law, the words, I have said you are gods is written. Now here's what Mormonism will do. Mormonism will take this and they'll say, see, everybody, we're all gods. We can all become gods. Uh, Jesus says it right here. That is just a terrible exposition of this passage. That is not what Jesus is saying at all. He's quoting Psalm 82 saying, I have said you are gods. And then he says, if he called them gods, pause for a second, or to whom the word of God came, pause for a second. Who is the them here? If he called them gods, it's the gods in Psalm 82. It's the divine council. That's undeniable. They're being judged in Psalm 82 for ruling unjustly. And so the Mormon view is that Jesus is telling the people standing around here, we're all gods, guys. And then the conservative Christian, the common view, is the opposite. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm a son of God. See, listen, you can't attack me for saying I'm a son of God. You're a son of God too. I'm a son of God just like you're a son of God. Now, that's not what they believe fully to that extent. But in this passage, that's the conservative Christian view. That's a traditional evangelical view that Jesus is saying, don't worry, guys, you're sons of God, too. I'm sons of God, just like you guys. It's like, is that really the argument you want to make? Is that really a more compelling argument than Jesus saying, I'm the Lord of the divine council? I'm the destroyer of the gods? And just so we're clear on exactly who I am here, I'm not just one of the Elohim. I'm not just another B'nai Elohim, son of God. I and the Father are one. 
That's unmistakable what he's saying there. And they understood that. They grabbed him and tried to kill him. Do you think they grabbed him and tried to kill him for saying you guys are sons of God just like I'm a son of God? Really? Do you think they grabbed him and tried to kill him because of this outlandish Mormon view that, well, you guys will be gods too, just like me. It's like, well, they probably would have been pretty angry at that, but why didn't Jesus allude to that anywhere else in the Bible? Why is the only place you can make that argument by just completely ripping something out of context? It's almost like going to Psalm 14 and saying there is no God because the Bible technically says a fool says in his heart there is no God. Like there's no way you can get either of those views if you're taking the context into account. And as far as the the earthly leaders view, um, the idea that Psalm 82, God's just judging worldly leaders, he's just judging leaders on earth, that doesn't make any sense either. Because what you have to do is you have to go through Psalm 82 and you have to pretty much qualify every single key word. And I'm not exaggerating. You have to qualify every key word in the chapter. You have to qualify the term Elohim that's used for the divine counsel to suggest it's just talking about human judges, even though we see a divine counsel all over the Bible. We see it in in Psalm 89, just a few chapters later. We see it in the Tower of Babel in Deuteronomy 32. We see it unmistakably in Job. So what you have to do is you have to say, no, this is is the less used usage of Elohim where it refers to people, uh, human rulers, as representatives of God and not to the divine council. So you have to qualify that term. You have to qualify the term uh, in verse five, that when they're being judged, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. And at the end, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Well, the term earth in both of those cases is the term arets. And for those of you who have studied uh, the, the flood narrative, Noah's Ark, you'll know that that's the same term used for earth in the uh, the flood narrative, that the whole earth was flooded. And so you're probably not a fan of somebody taking that term from the, the flood narrative and trying to use it for uh, one local location instead of the whole earth, but it's the same term used here. Most of the time, the term arets is used, it's describing the whole earth. Not always, but most of the time. And so what you have to do is you have to go through and you have to take all of the key terms in this, in this chapter and you have to qualify them to mean something else. You have to take all of the key terms and you have to use them in their least used usage of the word in the Bible. And that's not good hermeneutics. That's not, that's not a good expository study of the chapter. Uh, so... Anyway, so it's not polytheism, it's not Mormonism. Uh, I threw the other view in there because it's the most significant view, but none of these views add up. The divine counsel is, when, when viewing scripture and interpreting scripture with scripture even, it's the view that makes the most sense without having to qualify anything and without having to change anything. Okay, so the burden of proof is on the one who has to qualify all these terms and change the meaning of them in order to get something that makes us more comfortable or that fits in with our theological framework. But I would suggest interpreting scripture as it is written and as it is intended to be understood and not in a way that fits with some view that uh, that took a long time to put together. The next question is, why does this matter? Why does this theology matter? Or what does it change about the way I see God or the gospel? Uh, well, as I said toward the beginning, I don't think this is something that if you don't understand, you can't be a Christian. I'm not, I'm not suggesting anything like that. The reason it matters uh, is, 
I guess the simple way to put it is the reason it matters is that it's true. And if something's true about the Bible, it matters because we want to understand the Bible in the context that it was written and to the original audience that it was written to. And so we want to try to think like they would think. Now, the way Michael Heiser puts this is you want a little ancient Israelite living in your head when you're reading the New Testament, when you're, or the Old Testament, I'm sorry. When you're reading the New Testament, you want a little first century Jew in your head. So you want to become that little person. You want to understand what they would have understood. You want to think like they would have thought, uh, and you want to see things and, and take things in like they would have, because that's how you're going to understand it best. That's how you're going to best understand uh, the way that the Bible was written in its original context to its original hearers. <clears throat> and so I think one of the reasons this matters, for me personally, um, it, it made so much sense of so many things in Scripture that were just looked at as weird verses or weird kind of outlier passages uh, or concepts that we kind of just skip over and don't talk about a lot. I mean, when was the last time your pastor preached on Psalm 82 uh, or, or on 1 Peter 3? Not 3.15, but after that. Um, you know, all of these things, they're not just random Bible verses that don't make sense anymore. Now they're just like, wow, these what's weird is important. The weird verses are really important, and there's a reason that they're there, just like there's a reason all the rest of Scripture is there. And in fact, when Jesus, in that last question we talked about in John 10, Jesus quoting Psalm 82, um, he was willing to put his whole argument to hang all of the authority of Scripture on Asaph from Psalm 82. Most people don't make an argument off of a psalm, but Jesus did, uh, because he said that Scripture cannot be broken. And so what's true in the Bible is true no matter what part of the Bible it's in. And the more true stuff we understand about God, the better we understand who he is, the better we understand his word uh, and how it applies to us as well. So uh, what's true always matters. And I think that this has really transformed the way that I read the, vi- the Bible personally. And you'll hear that from tons of people who have, uh, who have researched this view, the divine counsel worldview. It really does transform the way that you read the Old and New Testament. Now, it's not just the Old Testament. Of course, in the Old Testament, you, you now have all these things strung together that's, that seemed like outliers before, and now they make a lot more sense. Like the Babel story, like Deuteronomy 32, like Psalm 82, <clears throat> like the book of Job. Uh, you have all of these things now working together to make s- such a cool picture as a whole. But as I had mentioned, you also see it in the New Testament. This influences everything in the New Testament. So when you see in the book of Colossae, uh, or the book of Colossians in the city of Colossae, where they're worshiping angels, it's like, that makes a lot more sense now. It's like, huh, now I see what they're kind of trying to do there. Um, When you read John 10, it makes so much more sense. When you read Luke 10, where we talked about Jesus sending out the 70, The 70, that's the same amount of nations in the table of nations right before Babel. Um, All this stuff makes so much sense, and you'll see it all over the place. It's sort of like uh, when when we were looking for a house, all of a sudden we noticed every single for sale sign all over the place. (laughs) Like there was not a single for sale sign. You could put it behind a bush and I would still see it because we were looking for a house. Uh, But beforehand, we just drove by them all the time and had no idea. We We didn't even glance at them. Well, it's the same kind of thing. Once you see this worldview, uh, once you see this this sort of backdrop, this whole big backdrop that we have created for Scripture and understanding Scripture, you see it all over the place, and it helps you to make sense of so many more things. 
And what's so cool is it's not just a view that's strung together. It's not one of those kind of things where you read it and you say, oh, I can kind of see that. It's like when you look into this worldview or when you read Unseen Realm, which is probably the most uh, the most popular and clear description of this worldview, it's undeniable. Like it'll probably make you uncomfortable because you're going to see things you haven't seen. Uh, it'll probably it'll probably change a lot of your thoughts and a lot of your views. But when something makes us uncomfortable because it's true, it's always better than the thing we thought previously. In fact, there was one time that my we did a Q&A with our students um, in one of them. I forget what the question was exactly, but the discussion that we had after the question was, I think, centered around the idea of how God thinks of people, that he both loves and hates certain things. And we, we've all heard the popular uh, phrase that God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And in a certain sense, that's true. But I remember when I had the discussion with the student, I showed her where in Romans uh, it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or we have John 3.16, that God so loved the world, the unbelieving world, that he sent his son. Um, so we have, on one hand, God does love the sinner. God wants to see the sinner come to repentance. He desires all to be saved. Uh, on the other hand, I showed her Psalm 5. That doesn't just say, it doesn't just say God hates evil. It says God hates the evildoer. And her heart dropped when I told her that. But when we hear these things and we say, that makes me uncomfortable. Why would God do this? Why would God do that? Why would this happen? When we see these things that make us uncomfortable, but then we come to terms with them, we understand God even better. We understand even better what it means for someone to die for their enemy and for someone to love their enemy. And so the thing that makes us uncomfortable, the thing that causes us to change our view, the new view is always better than the one that we previously held, if that view is wrong. Truth is always better than non-truth, in every situation always. Um, so there's a lot of reasons this matters, but as I said at the beginning of the question, the most important one is that it's true, and if it's true, we want to know the, the most about it that we possibly can. Uh, so for this last section, uh, where I'm going to do the Satan and Job questions, I'm going to try to go through them. I'm not going to make this extensive. I'm going to go through them quickly. Uh, but basically, as I had mentioned, I was having a discussion with somebody, a listener over email a little while ago, and it was a really good discussion. And I thought instead of like going through and trying to copy and paste parts of it, I would just pull up this article that somebody had written against the view that the Satan in Job is not Satan, the, the cosmic evil being. Uh, and if you know my view at all, if you've listened to the Satan series we did, uh, I think the first episode was called The the Serpent and the Guardian Cherub. Uh, Satan is in the Old Testament. He's all over the Old Testament. He's in the Garden of Eden. He's in Ezekiel 28. He's in Isaiah 14. Uh, we see him throughout the Old Testament. But I do not think that the Satan in Job is Satan. And when I say Satan, I mean the devil, I mean the evil cosmic being. I think that the Satan is someone who's a member of God's divine counsel, and it's his job to test people's faith, to put it simply. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at uh, this article, and I'm just going to read the first three questions and respond to them. There's actually a couple more, but they get a little more technical, and so I'll link the article in the description below as well. Uh, and if you have any more questions, like if you read those last questions and you're like, oh, I want you to answer those, you have to answer those, then just email me and I'll answer them over email, that's fine. Um, 
But in this article, it's written by a guy from Biola. His name is uh, Kenneth Birding. <clears throat> and as I had mentioned, I really like the way he writes the article. It's a very respectful article. It's, it's the kind of article that when a, a Christian questions another Christian's view, this is what an article should look like. It shouldn't look like I'm going to do a smear campaign and try to ruin this guy's life. It should look respectful, and that's how this article looks. So I'll link it in the, in the description, and I would encourage you to read it anyway um, if you do hold the same view I hold. But anyway, well-written article, good guy. Number one, uh, Heiser asserts that personal names in Hebrew do not include the def a definite article ha or the. Uh, ha in Hebrew is the. Thus, in Job, ha-satan or the-satan cannot be a name but must be a title. So he points out that uh, the definite article before the word satan means it's not a name. So it's the Satan. It's not Satan, like your English translations often render it. It's the Satan. And so you wouldn't say the Nick. You wouldn't say the Brian. You wouldn't say the Katie. That's, that's not, English grammar does not allow for that. It doesn't tolerate that, and neither does Hebrew grammar. So undisputedly, the Satan is not a personal name. And any translation translating it as a personal name is wrong. I don't think that can be very well disputed. It's not a personal name. So his response to this is, even if we grant that Hasatan or Thesatan in Job is a title rather than a name, this does not necessarily entail that the being referred to is a different being from Satan. In Germany in the 1940s, someone who spoke of uh, the leader would have been employing a title rather than a name to designate Adolf Hitler. But that doesn't necessitate that the speaker was referring to two different entities. Um, that's true. But I'm going to re actually I'm going to read number two with it because these two I'll answer together. The second one is that Heiser comments that the book of Job does not connect the Satan to the serpent of Genesis three. And his response is this is an argument from silence. There is no particular reason why the author of Job would need to make this connection. So he responds to this idea of the Satan and the idea of the Satan not being connected in any way to the serpent in Genesis three. Well, I would, uh, I would agree, not with him, I would agree with the view that there is no connection and that the Satan is not a name. So his response was that, well, it's not a name, but it's still a term that could be used for Satan. Well, yeah, that's true, but then sort of that's where the second question comes into play, where I would read them together here. Because you can't just say, because it could be referring to a certain character, it automatically is. You have to show some kind of causal connection. You can't just take a word in scripture and attribute it to whoever you want. So, for example, when we read Ezekiel 28, there's a connection between the figure used in the taunt in Ezekiel 28 and the, and the uh, serpent in the garden in Genesis 3. The connection is that you were in Eden. And it goes through and talks about how he was created to be beautiful, but he fell, he sinned against God, he wanted to be like the Most High, but that he was in Eden. So you see a direct correlation between this figure in Ezekiel 28 and the serpent in Genesis 3. The same with Isaiah 14. You see a connection between Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Uh, and you see that connection with Genesis 3. In Job, there is no connection. And the reason that I think this is so significant is that if you ever get into a discussion with an educated atheist, if you ever get into a discussion with an educated Jewish person, they're going to point out to you in this area that there is no connection. 
what they're going to say is because Satan, uh, because Christians have this certain view of Satan, they just read it into Job. And I agree with them. I think that's true. If the term Satan was not used in the New Testament, we would probably never think the Satan in Job is the same figure. There's no connection to anything to make us assume that. And then the argument kind of turns into, well, he's mean. Well, he's, he's afflicting pain on somebody. And we're going to look at a few examples of that too from God's divine counsel. But there's no connection to be made. So while the Satan could be a term that somebody could use to refer to Satan, the adversary or the accuser, sure, but there's no causal connection. There's no way to link this. So in other words, it's just pretty much a a toss-up. Whatever you want the Satan and Job to be, that's what he is. On the other hand, if you interpret this as the Satan being a member of God's counsel, well, it makes a lot more sense because this is somebody who's in God's counsel among the other sons of God. Why would Satan, after being thrown out of the garden, after being banished from the divine council, why would he be in the, in the presence of God working with God? I mean, that makes a lot, a lot less sense to me, that Satan would be allowed back into the divine council and that he would be taking orders from God or, or going back and forth with God and then going out and working from God. Why would, why would God have Satan roaming back and forth on the earth uh, or at least desire for him to do that? Clearly, this is somebody who was doing a job and coming back and and reporting to God. Now, of course, yeah, it is a little weird because the guy was not very nice and he did question God. Uh, But we'll give a couple examples of that too in just a minute. So number three, uh, Heiser correctly notes that in most instances where the word Satan shows up in the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't refer uh, to the devil. And then his response is true, but his comment is largely irrelevant to the question at hand. All but four of the passages in which Satan appears are in reference to a human who stands somehow in an oppositional relationship to another human, which makes those passages immaterial to the question of the nature of the spiritual being labeled Ha-Satan. Well, I would disagree with that, uh, firstly, because it is the same term used. And when there's a term used somewhere, you have to go and see where else it's used, and you have to see what it's referring to in those other cases. So on the contrary, what we have here is not only is there no connection, which the author of the article admits uh, in number two, there is no connection to the serpent in Genesis 3. Now you have to add that the Satan also has no connection, if it means Satan, to any other usage of the Satan in the Old Testament. So you have not a single time that the Satan is referring to Satan in the Old Testament if you just cancel out Job here. That's pretty significant. You're taking a term that's not a name and applying it to a character who you have no connection to, either in the Old Testament as a whole or in terms of the name. So if Christians didn't hold a specific view of Satan, which we do, which I do, we never would have read this as the same character. We never would have forced this uh, into the Bible. And there are a few places where people will claim uh, that the Satan is referring to Satan in the Old Testament, but I disagree with that too. In fact, it's, it's used to refer to David, just so you're aware. It's used to refer to God, to the angel of the Lord. Um, this is a term that's used close to, it's between 25 and 30 times. I don't remember exa- the exact number, but it's never used to refer to Satan in the Old Testament. And people will point to uh, 1 Chronicles 21.1. Or, I'm sorry, 21.1. So if you want to read 1 Chronicles 21.1, I'll, I'll try to remember to link that in the suggested scripture reading. People will try to say that refers to Satan. But the problem is 
The parallel passage in 2 Samuel 24 refers to God as the Satan. So you can't even use 1 Chronicles 21 as uh, as being used to refer to Satan. So there are zero verses in the Old Testament where Satan or the Satan, either one of the usages, is used of an evil cosmic being or linked to the serpent in the garden. An atheist or a Jew will point this out, and I think they're right in this area. It's not all too often I say that, but I think they're right in this area. I don't think that there is any link or correlation between the terminology or the serpent in Genesis 3. So what you have to do is instead of doing instead of doing genuine hermeneutics, what you have to do is you have to take a concept you're familiar with and you have to force it into Job. And we wouldn't like it when people do that in other areas. We don't like it when the Jehovah's Witnesses do that with John 1.1, that the word was a God and the word was with God. So we wouldn't like when they do that. <clears throat> we wouldn't like when the Mormons do it in, in John chapter 10, that, oh, you're gods too. You know, so what we need to do is we need to not take theological views we formed outside of scripture or in a different part of scripture and then force them in somewhere where we think it should fit and go as far as to translate the Bible in that way. Uh, So as I said, if you're, I'll I'll link the article in there. You can read the rest of it. And um, if you're interested in the rest of those questions, like I said, they're a little more technical. They probably take more time and a lot of people would, I'm sure, zone out. But uh, if you're interested, just email me and I'd love to continue that discussion. And if you have any further questions about any of these questions, send an email at information at apologetics.org. I would love to continue the conversation. I would love to get more into it uh, with you. So feel free to do that and start sending your questions throughout the month. You can do it any day of the week. Just email any question you have having to do with the faith to information at apologetics.org for the next question and answer that will be more general and less specific. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Make sure you go back and listen to those uh, series that I linked in the description below. I think they'll be helpful to you. I think they might challenge your thinking, and I would love to hear your thoughts on them as well. So uh, send an email, and otherwise, I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you back here Monday night at 6 p.m. on The Universe Next Door.